0: My name is Nathan Beer. I am the Connection and College Pastor here at Hope Fellowship. I am so excited to be joining you guys today and having the unexpected privilege of getting to start a brand new series called Exiles that we will be in for the months of summer as we study through the book of 1st Peter, seeing how we have a living hope in the midst of our suffering. Um, but before we begin, I do want to preface today with the reason why I am up here and why she said Pastor Mark. Um, earlier in the week, Pastor Mark was called away due to a family emergency. His father is um, close to passing, and so he wanted to be with him in those moments. And so before, before we even get started today, what I wanted to do as a church body is to pray over him and his family and his dad today. So I'd like to pray, but in your own seats wherever you are and if you're watching from church at home today could you please just pray yourself as well for him and his dad and his family so if you would let's pray dear jesus we just lift up to you right now um the gaskew family god we lift up to you uh pastor mark's dad right now and we just pray right now for peace and comfort in these final moments um god and, and more than that god we pray for an assurance to him, God, that you will assure him of the inheritance that you have given him through your son, Jesus, God, that you will assure him and give him that sense of security in these moments, God. I pray that he rests in those truths that the resurrection provides um, for all of us today, God. I pray for Pastor Mark and Reba and his children and everyone who um, loves his dad, God, that you would just be providing to them a peace that surpasses all understanding, God, that you would be comforting their very souls and their emotions that they have, God, and I I just pray powerfully for your healing hand to be over every single person involved in that situation, God, that you would heal their hearts, God, that you would heal their physical body, heal his physical body, God, if that is your will. Um, But, God, that you would just be over the situation, reminding them of your goodness in the midst of suffering, God, and to remind them that you are a God who gives peace and comfort and a security and a salvation that is eternal. So, God, we thank you for these things. We pray over this time that we have here together. We thank you that you are in this place, and we pray for him and his Father today. So, you know, we pray. And every single person said... Amen. Thank you guys so much for praying, and please continue to be in prayer for him as they are navigating what this looks like. And I know that that kind of is a different way to start a service, but I do want to communicate the excitement that we have as a church and as a pastoral preaching team to be going through this book, First Peter, with all of you guys because of how applicable it is to each of us in the room and watching from church at home and how applicable it is to the society in which we're living in. And I realize that makes it sound like I'm saying that other books of the Bible are not as applicable, and please do not hear that, okay? All books of the Bible are absolutely applicable. They all speak to us in our present day, in the present society in which we find ourselves, but 1 Peter was written in a time where Christians were being treated in a way that mirrors how Christians today are being Treated, And so I believe that this is an absolutely necessary series for us to go through today. I believe that this is absolutely a God-ordained moment that we are starting this series today. And so before we begin and start diving into 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 9 today, I want to remind us of the necessity, the value, and the legitimacy of this book. And not just the book of 1 Peter, but the book, I mean like the Bible, the legitimacy of this, the necessity of this. Because I believe that we have to understand just how important the living word of God is in our life for us to be able to understand 1 Peter in the context of what it was being written in. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit. I read these two verses to start out with the importance that we have to approach Scripture with, with the value that we have to look at Scripture with. Early on in my walk, as I was learning what it meant to be a Christian, as I was learning what it meant to have a relationship with God, I did not treat Scripture as those two verses treat it. I treated it either as a checklist that I just needed to check off. I treated it as an academic approach where what can I learn about past history and the hist- history of the early church or the Israelites or anyone like that. And what that started to make me do, and if I, well actually if I'm being honest, the reason I treated it that at times was because I didn't understand like 90% of it. 95% of it, maybe even 99% of it. I don't know if any of you guys can empathize with that feeling. But I just felt like every time I read any passage of Scripture, I felt like 95% of it was just zooming over my head, and then I would just end with like, well, I think Jesus loves me, so we can just keep going on, right? But I was missing out on all of these undertones and these hints and, re- and, and, and reflections back to Jewish history and traditions and how rich that made the knowing of Christ fulfilling all of those laws and traditions. I didn't really understand all of that. And so what it made me do is it made me lean into solely listening to a pastor. And it was Pastor Mark because that's kind of where I started my faith was here at this church. And I listened to a pastor And I got all of my information about the Bible from one person and from one pastor so that it was no longer actually my faith that I was living, but I was actually living essentially through Pastor Mark's faith as he preached to me and taught me about the gospel. And I think that we do this at times. We rely on people and on me because partly it is our job as a preaching team to dissect this text, to look at the historical and literary context and who the audience is and who the author is. That is my job. That's what we're spending some, some of our time, not all of our time, but some of our time on throughout the week. But it is also our role as Christians to be doing those same things. But we can fall into the trap of relying on other people to do all of that hard work because if we're being honest, it's easier, right? Right? But if I can urge you all today in the room, and if you're watching from church at home today, that if you are a believer, then we are called to meditate on this, we are called to study this, and we are called to chew on this, as the book of Isaiah says, that we are called to chew on the word of God. Peter describes the importance later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 24 and 25, and he says, "'All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass.'" The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's saying, why are we spending so much time on so many other things when the one thing that is going to be the steadfast thing that lasts through all of eternity is the word of God? If we're confessing that Jesus is the Lord, then we need to treat every verse, every word, every comma of this Bible like my dog treats her toy, the Red Kong, when we fill it with peanut butter. I don't know if you guys have a pet, hopefully it's a dog, if not, repent and turn to the grace of God, hallelujah and amen, but my dog McGarry, once again, terrible name for a dog, some of you know her name, and it's a girl dog, and we named her McGarry, so all in all, terrible name, you don't have to email me about the fact that it was a terrible dog name or anything like that, I know that, but anyways, if you give my dog McGarry this red Kong filled with peanut butter, she will get lost in it for hours. I mean, she will sit there going at this peanut butter from one angle, then twisting it and going at it from another. So she'll start chewing on it to try to squeeze out the rest of the peanut butter. She will work for hours making sure that she's gotten every single ounce of peanut butter out of this red kong. And it's sticky as I'm touching it. I'm realizing the mistake of holding this. But... Even then after the peanut butter is gone, she continues to go at this toy because there is still a scent of peanut butter. There is still a taste of peanut butter. And she is making sure that she is getting off every single iota of peanut butter that, w- that was or ever will be on this toy. And as Christians, that's how we need to treat this Book. We don't idolize this book, but we understand the value of this book in the fact that this is God speaking to a specific people for you and I today. And so I spend so much time on this emphasizing the importance because I want to, as we start this series, urge us and encourage us today to imagine this. Imagine if we had a body of people, and I'm not saying that none of us do this now, but imagine if we had a body of people that when we start expositorily going through a book of the Bible in First Peter that we had everyone here going through First Peter on their own quiet times every single morning, that they were dissecting the text on their own, they were chewing that text throughout the week, so that when we come here, it is that much richer and more encouraging in our knowing of who Christ is. I want to encourage you guys today that as we start this series, don't just wait for a Sunday morning to dive into First Peter. Dive into First Peter on your own while you're at home, so that when you're here, it is that much richer for you, It's a beautiful truth, right? And this is a sermon within a sermon, so it's kind of like inception happening up here, right? And so I'll get to the actual sermon, but I want to make sure that we as Christians are studying this, meditating on it, and flipping it over and over and over, making sure that we have gotten every single thing that God has revealed to us in it. And so with this idea of dissection and meditation. It brings us to two questions that I want to start this series with today. And it's two questions that I believe whenever you're opening up your Bible, you should know the answer to. So starting today, these are two questions that you should always know the answer to because they help you understand the meaning of what you are reading. And that is, who is the author and who are they writing to? Who is the author and who are they writing to? And if maybe you're groaning because you're like, Nathan, we do not want a history lesson. This is so much more than a history lesson. So let's begin. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. 10 minutes in and we're just starting reading. That's totally fine. We can do this. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1. Let's read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That was easy, right? That one was easy. To those who are elect exiles. Go ahead and underline elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So as we start off and we're answering these two questions, who is the writer of the book and who is he writing to? Obvious answer is Peter and he is writing to a group that he is calling the elect exiles, who are a group of early Christian believers who were mostly Gentiles that were scattered across these five territories and what he's encouraging them with is this message that they can find their hope in the midst of the suffering and persecution that they are under because of the past event of the resurrection now peter this is a guy if you're unfamiliar with him he was a disciple of jesus he's the one who denied christ three times in the moment of his crucifixion and he's an essential person in the spreading of the gospel in the early church And one important note we need to make is that before we see him writing this letter, we see him treating a similar group of Gentile Christians, not that they were the same and and I guess how old they were or anything like that, but he was treating a Gentile group of Christians um, with a way that was trying to assimilate them into his own faith. In the book of Acts, we see Peter talking to a group of Gentile believers. These are believers who did not grow up in the Jewish tradition. They weren't used to doing all of those, having all of those rules and regulations in their life. They were a group of believers who knew Christ first and they were starting their journey kind of from ground zero. Whereas these Jewish people had a rich knowledge of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They understood the exile and what it meant to be saved by God. They they already had that kind of foundation. And the Gentile believers did not, and so we see in Acts Peter saying that they need to assimilate to his way of doing things; that they need to be circumcised, so that they can be known that they're Christians; that they need to abstain from certain foods because that's what you know they're supposed to do, and they needed to do certain things in order that they to, to show that they were Christians; that they needed to do certain things in order to keep the faith. And it gets to a point where God actually sends a vision in the book of Acts to Peter of Peter eating certain meats, of Peter getting to do things that he once could not do. And it reveals to Peter that it's no longer your ethnicity, your race, or your tribe that determines whether or not you're God's chosen people. It is where you place your hope and your faith. And so we get to this text and already in the first two verses we can see Peter writing still with these rich Jewish terms and themes, terms like exiles, which would refer back to the time in Exodus, Exodus exiles, or the dispersion, which is translated from the word diaspora, which referred to these Israelites who were scattered in the wilderness, or the sprinkling with his blood, which referred to a Jewish person walking into a temple, going to an altar and sealing this covenant of obedience and committing to be faithful to God by sprinkling blood. He's using this rich Jewish terminology, but not to try to assimilate with him. His tone has changed. What he's trying to tell them by using that language and communicating the truths of the gospel is that they are now a part of God's family. That no longer, it matters whether or not they were uh, in a tribe of Israel, whether or not they're in the Abrahamic line. All that matters is that their faith and their hope has been firmly set in Christ and his death burial and resurrection. Just in him doing this, it is a great encouragement to these early Christians because of what they were going through. These early Christians, the audience that he is writing to, they were separated from each other. They were scattered across. They were without their support systems that they were used to. They were without their comfortability and their securities that they were used to. And in all of that, they were in the midst of persecution. And when I say persecution, I don't mean the type of persecution that we oftentimes think of in the early churches, whereas people were being murdered and jailed and stoned. That, that's not what is actually happening here. These early Christians were under the rule and reign of King Nero, and King Nero is the guy who would one day burn Christians at parties for fun. But this was a time before King Nero was actually like super crazy, which is kind of hard to believe knowing the stuff that he did. But there was a time before he was super crazy. What they were going through and the persecution that they were going through was one that did not put their life on the line, but put their lifestyle on the line. It's one that didn't put their life on the line where they were risking their life for the sake of the gospel, but they were risking their livelihood for the sake of the gospel. They had a different view than the society that they were living in on where they found their happiness, or where they placed their identity, or what their purpose was, or what morality good and evil was, and and where they found their joy, and how they viewed politics. and, And because of this, and because of their faith, they suffered. Peter says, the way they did life suffered, their families suffered, they lost friends because of their stances on faith, they lost jobs because they were not willing to subject themselves to certain things and they wanted to stand for what was right. They were treated unfairly and they were being discriminated against. This is what these early Christians are going through and this is Peter, the author, who he is writing to. And this is why Peter is writing this letter. He's encouraging and reminding them that they are elect exiles. Two absolutely stunningly beautiful words that he is calling them elect exiles. And in verses 1, uh, in verses, or sorry, in First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, he kind of lays out what it looks like to be this elect exile. So if you would, let's keep reading in verse 3 where Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Put in parentheses that living hope. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's laying out what it looks like to be this elect exile, to be someone who has been chosen by God, elect, and is also in exile, someone who has been rejected by God. The world In verses 3 to 5, we see him lay out what it looks like uh, to be elect, to be chosen by God. That when you are chosen by God, that when we choose God and God chooses us, that we then gain a living hope that is rooted in the past event of the resurrection and is secured in and, and provides for us a security in our future salvation. What he's saying is that in all of this, the living hope that he's talking about, the living hope that he's emphasizing is the thing that distinguishes us as set apart, that distinguishes us as chosen. The living hope is the thing in which basically where, where we start, we're placing our, our, our hope in something else before we are chosen. And then once we are chosen, we have this new living hope that our salvation is secured in his faithfulness now, not in our faithfulness to him. That our living hope is where they find their security, not in their present situation, but in their eternal destination that he says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's an incredible comforting connection that Peter is making in these three verses, that what it means to be chosen is that God is keeping an inheritance in heaven for us through his son, Jesus Christ, but not only that, he's keeping you for it. He's keeping an inheritance for us, but he's also keeping us for the inheritance. This goes back to what he was talking about with the sprinkling with his blood. Like I said, those Jewish people, when they were making this seal of, of this covenant of obedience to God, committing to God that they were going to be faithful to him, they would seal it by sprinkling the blood. And so you had two people on the sides of the covenant. You would have the person doing the sprinkling, and then you would have God upholding his end of that covenant. But what we see here is Peter is saying that Jesus has stepped into our place in front of that altar and has sprinkled his own blood that it is now not us standing on one side and God standing on the other. It is Jesus upholding one end and the Father upholding the other end. He is revealing to us this beautiful truth that to be chosen means that God is keeping us. He is shielding us. He is protecting us. And in the midst of that, he's also keeping and shielding an unfading and imperishable inheritance for us that we can set our hope in based on the past event of the resurrection. Our living hope is found in a living God who has delivered us from death and who will deliver us from our present suffering and that will lead into an inheritance that he is keeping for us and us for. It is this eternal security that we have through his act of mercy and grace that is able to withstand anything and everything. That is what it means to be elect. That is what it means to be chosen by God. But then we have a flip side of this coin because he doesn't just use the word elect. He also uses the word exiles. He calls them elect exiles. And I love the fact that he uses those two words because they mean opposite things. Elect is chosen. Exiled is rejected. So why is he using those two together? Because he's saying that when you are chosen by God, you are going to be rejected by the world that you are living in, that when you have your new birth and you become a part of this new family through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then we become exiles to the world that we are presently living in. And I think our biggest misconception with this word exile is that we make it synonymous with the word renter. A renter. Has anybody here ever rented a house or an apartment or condo? Raise your hand if you've ever rented something. Yeah, a renter. Okay, so when I was renting, I did not want to put anything into the house that we were living in, and that shows by how we left it when we left, okay? Not me and my wife, Cassie, me and my three roommates in college. It was evident that we were not putting anything into that house, right? We didn't want to invest any of our time or energy or money into it because we knew that it was a temporary house that we were living in, and we were essentially just waiting until the moment that we could get out of that house. That is what a renter means, but that is not what an exile means. That is not what it means to be called an elect exile. Jeremiah 29, Four through seven says the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims to all the exiles: I, that being God, have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is God speaking about and towards exiles. Build houses and settle down. Cultivate gardens and eat what they produce. Get married and have children. Then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands, in order that they too may have children. Increase in your number. There, so that you don't dwindle away. Promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on it. We are not just renters, we are exiles that have been chosen to steward a temporary home to raise up believers, to make disciples who make disciples, and to fight to make the kingdom of God known and present in the world in which we live in today, in the city in which we live in today, in the country in which we live in today. We are to steward the gifts of grace that God has given us. A pastor once said, The scripture provides an insight into our nature that we are all, man and woman, called into this life to find our vocation the work that is uniquely ours, and to contribute to the flourishing of the wider community. This is our calling as exiles, to make the areas around us look like the kingdom of God. And remember, the kingdom of God is not a nation. The kingdom of God is a person. Jesus says, I'm standing in front of Pontius Pilate, the kingdom of God stands before you. The kingdom of God is a person. And so what we are doing when we are making the kingdom of God known is that we are making the world look more and more like Jesus. We are making the people look more and more like Jesus. Our born-again lives are not supposed to be spent here waiting until our time is up, hoping that the rapture can come soon. Our born-again lives are to be spent stewarding the gifts of grace that God has given us, fighting for God's justice in the areas that justice is needed, to stand up against those who would defame God and his kingdom. He has called us to be rooted in the way of the Lord through an understanding of Scripture in our hearts. To be rooted in the way of the Lord and to raise up those around us in the same understanding and knowing of him through his word. With the expectation that when we go against the norm, when we are living as elect exiles, and trust me, even here in Anderson, South Carolina, even in the Bible Belt, if we are truly living as elect exiles, that will be against the norm the norm of our society. When we go against the norm for the sake of the gospel, trust me when I say that we are going to go through trials and tribulations and suffering for the sake of our faith and because of where our hope is placed. We are elect exiles. We are God's chosen people who are stewarding what we have and where we are to make a world that has rejected God come to know him. And it brings us to this question that we should always bring scripture to in our personal quiet time and here when we are gathered corporately together, worshiping him through reading the word and learning more about who he is and what he is. And that question is, what does this have to do with me today? How does knowing about Peter and elect exiles change how I wake up in the morning, change how I put on my pants in the morning? How does it change my day-to-day life? How does it change how I raise my family? How should it change my lifestyle? And in order to answer this question, we have to understand the similarities that we have between us and the people that Peter was writing to at this time. And maybe you've already kind of seen it, but but let's talk about that for a second. This group of believers that Peter was writing to had not yet seen Jesus physically on earth. They, they were a people that were after that time. And so what they were having to do is that they were having to rely on the stories and testimonies of other people like we're doing today through the inspired word of God in order to know him so that they could have a relationship with him. This group of believers that Peter was writing to was in a society that celebrated the self and the glorification of the self. I don't really think I need to show the comparison between that society and our society, but I'll go ahead and do it anyways. We live in a society that is selfish and self-centered. They're focused on making themselves the most happy that they think their happiness should be defined by. They put their identity in things that they think will be the most beneficial to them. That we are a selfish people. We are a sinful people who are focused on ourselves and the bettering of ourselves. This group of believers that Peter was writing to, they were suffering because of the gospel and the fact that they believed in it. They were losing jobs because they stood strong in their beliefs. They were losing friends and respect in the contexts of their community because they were taking stances on things that seemed countercultural and bad. They were discriminated against because of their lifestyle. And we as Christians today in this world are becoming more and more a minority when it comes to our beliefs on where our identity should be placed, where we should find our sense of enjoyment and joy, where, where we should lie when it comes to being selfless or how we should be voting or our stances on abortion and homosexuality. We are becoming more and more in the minority for living as an elect exile. And yet, In all of this, we can expect, because of the way that God has commanded us to live, because of the way that we are called to live as elect exiles, that we are going to face suffering. That our Christian walk is a walk of suffering when we choose God and when we reject the world. First Peter two twenty-one says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered, we're going to follow in his steps. First Peter four one says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Prepare yourselves to suffer, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I understand that suffering is a really touchy subject and we don't like talking about it and we really, no one here really wants to suffer and if you are looking to suffer then maybe we should have a conversation because no one's really looking to suffer, right? And Peter's not saying to go look, okay, where can I suffer the most? Let me run to that spot and then go suffer. That's not what Peter is saying here. He's saying that if you are truly living as an elect exile, then suffering will come your way for the sake of the gospel because that was what happened to Christ and we are now following in his footsteps. The Christian walk is that of a walk of suffering because we are dying daily to our flesh and the world in which we live. We're rejecting the world in which we live. We're rejecting the world that, that pushes us to behave a certain way, to live a certain way, that tries to dictate what we should be thinking and doing. And I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm not talking about mass of the vaccine. So please get that out of your head right now. I'm talking about the way in which we find our identity. I'm talking about those root issues, the things that, that affect every other aspect of our life, that being where our hope is placed. When we reject what the world says, suffering is going to happen, but what Peter is saying here is, is that whether you want it or not, suffering will be a litmus test to where your hope truly lies. Not only that, it's going to be, he says, a refining fire that will produce something more valuable than gold. Romans five three to five says not Paul. Paul writes this. He says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul, that's a little weird, dude. But we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Peter in these verses is echoing what Paul is saying that suffering is the catalyst for our growing deeper into God. That suffering is the weeding out class of the Christian faith. Uh, my father-in-law talked to me about a class that he had in his a master's program when he was going through his engineering degree. And one of the first classes was one of the hardest classes he said he ever took. And I'm going to get the numbers wrong and I'm sure I'll get a text from my father-in-law about getting the numbers wrong. But that's absolutely fine, Bob. I love you. Um, but he said that about 50 to 70% of those people either dropped out or failed that class. And the professor did that intentionally because what he was trying to do was to make sure that those who were going to pass that exam, to pass that class, were going to be ones who were supposed to be there, ones who would be willing to work for that degree, and ones who were really passionate and called to that specific degree. Suffering is the same type of thing. God does not just give us suffering purposelessly. Purposelessly. I don't know if that's a word. Did I add too many lessons? Anyways... It's not purposeless. I just, why did I say the word again? Okay, it's not purposeless. I'm getting it now. Suffering has a purpose in our life and it is a refining fire. It is a weeding out in our lives to burn off the impurities of our life, to burn off the selfishness of our life, to burn off the sin that is in our life so that we can have a deeper knowing of Him. And so what we have to ask ourselves today in light of what we have read is our we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel not in some cute futuristic way where we can all say yes to it right now i want us to really ask ourselves and our hearts are we willing to suffer for the gospel I want our response to be that of we're rooting ourselves in the Bible and the word of God so that when trials, tribulation, suffering, and persecution comes, whether it's in this time or the next, whether it's on our life or our lifestyle, that we would be willing to die for the gospel. That we would be willing to lose our job for our stance and belief on what is right and wrong. For our stance and belief on who God is and what he is in our life. That we would be willing to be scattered for the sake of the gospel. Is God real enough to you? Do you have a real enough relationship with him through your understanding of what is written here today that you would be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel because you have a living hope that is not in your present circumstances but is found in the past event in the resurrection and what it has secured for us in our future inheritance? It's a tough question. And and if you're not there today, I get it. I am not there some days and I feel like I could be there other days. It's a maturing process that we as believers have to be a part of. But the matter of the fact is that whether we want to or not, if you are confessing to make Jesus your Lord and Savior today, then we are not called to just be renters in a world idly waiting by for God to take us, living how we want to live and never investing in this world, whether it's monetarily or spiritually or with our blood, sweat, and tears. We have been called to be elect exiles. We have been called to suffer for the sake of the gospel just as Jesus did. So what Peter is encouraging these Christians with in this time, and what he's encouraging you and I today is that we are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel in some way, shape, or form at some point, whether it's on our life or our lifestyle. What an encouragement, right? But the encouragement comes in this. Our hope is not found in what you is not found in you or in what you can do. Our hope is not found in the direction that our country is going in. Our hope is not found in the world in, in the direction in which the world we live in is going in. Our hope is not found in the quality of life that you have, whether you are dirt poor or filthy rich, whether you, wherever you are on that spectrum, your quality of life is not found in that. Your quality, uh, your your hope, excuse me. Your hope is found in something that has already happened, that is set, that is shielded. That being that Jesus delivered us from all sin, death, and evil on that moment of the resurrection. And in that moment, when we choose him and make that the source of our faith, we have a secured inheritance that he is keeping for us and is keeping us for. So it allows us to rejoice in the midst of your suffering. Not rejoice at your suffering, but rejoice in the midst of your suffering because you know what it is refining you to, that you know that you are going to come out on the other side because when God is keeping you, he's the one pulling you through that suffering, and that that suffering will produce a deeper knowing of him, a deeper love for him, so that that when suffering comes again, and unfortunately, it will that you will be even more rooted in the richness of who God is and what he is to us. Verses eight and nine say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. It comes back to having a relationship with God it comes back to having a relationship with a living God so that we can have a living hope and we do it through the living and active words of Scripture. Rest in the fact that he has delivered us from evil and that he is working in us so that we can have a sanctifying relationship with him right now. The more you start to read scripture, the more you start to meditate on it, the more you start to study it, the more you start to chew on scripture, the more you'll start to see the promises that God has made to his people that he's fulfilled for them. The more you'll see his great acts of love on display throughout history. The more you'll see his character and his attributes and you'll start to realize that he is truly and holistically good. The more you dive into the word and immerse yourselves in gospel-centered communities like the one you're in now, but taking it outside of just a Sunday morning and, and investing in the kingdom's people outside of it so that you can make disciples who make disciples. The more that we do those things, the more that we are corporately worshiping together and praying together and praising together, the more that we are privately worshiping together and praying by ourselves and interceding on people's behalf and pressing into him The more we are working to live every single second of our life, to live our life through the hope of the resurrection, the more we will be rooted in that. The more we will be, the more revealed of him will be revealed to us at a time. We will know him more. We will have a deeper understanding of him. We will love him more and we will recognize the great love that he has for us, that he is upholding both sides of the covenant. Maybe not the greatest message to start with this whole series about suffering, and we're going to be suffering, and I just said the word suffering probably a hundred times. I get that. But that's the message of First Peter. That's the message of the Gospels is to show us how Christ was a sacrificial lamb that was being led to the slaughter, and he did so willingly for our sake. And that is the way in which we are going to follow, that we are going to suffer in this world for the sake of the Gospel, because we are God's chosen people and the world's rejected people. We are elect exiles. So whatever you're going through in this moment, whatever trials and tribulations or suffering, or even if you're suffering from persecution right now and people are discriminating against you because of your faith, or you've lost a job because of your faith, or you've lost family because of your faith, or you've lost friends because of your stance on certain things, if you have lost respect in the context of your community, wherever you are today, press on. Press in to him because the result will be more precious than gold and it will result in all praise and all glory and honor going to a God who is deserving of it all. God has chosen us to be stewards of a temporary world. He's chosen us. He wants you. He has promised to keep you. And he has promised to keep for you an inheritance that is worth more than gold or anything of this world. So place your hope in him today and nothing else. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful truth. We thank you that we can come here and corporately worship you in so many different facets, God, that we can reorient our hearts so that we can learn to truly worship you, God, that we can learn to live a life that is truly shielded by the resurrection and the inheritance that is coming for us, God. I pray for us as a church body, God. I pray for the people here in this room today and for those watching from church at home. I pray that we will not just sit idly by and wait until our time is up here on earth. But that we will rest our full hope in you. That is not dependent on the present circumstances that we are facing but is set in the past event of your resurrection, God, so that we can truly be people who are fighting to make your kingdom, your son known to those around us at whatever cost. I pray that when suffering comes in our lives, whether it's now in the future, whether we have gone through it, whether we are going through it, God, that you will rest so peacefully onto our souls that we will have a hope that is unfading and is imperishable. We thank you that you are a living God who has provided for us a living, eternal hope that we can understand more of and dig deeper into through your living word. God, we love you. I thank you, Jesus, for this time that we have together. Just name we pray, amen.